C.S. Lewis said that Christmas is God's invasion on foreign territory behind enemy lines. And if you are going to invade a hostile territory where they were going to do everything that they could to slaughter you, how would you approach that area? You would probably, probably be well fortified. You would probably be heavily armed. But when Jesus came to this earth, when the creator of all things came to the creation, he came in the form of a baby. How incredibly humble is that? So as to say, this is how approachable I am. This is how tender my heart is toward you. Who's intimidated by a baby? Who's afraid of a baby? And when God came to say, I love you, and to pay the ultimate price to reconcile us toward him, he did it in the form of a baby. He began as a baby. But he had no intention to stay a baby. Though that was an incredible display of humility and vulnerability, he grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor of God and man. And he went to the cross and he was slaughtered on our behalf. He paid the price for our sin to reconcile us unto himself so that we could enter into a relationship with him. And this slaughter is what we've been looking at for the last three or so weeks in Isaiah 53. It is a sorrowful chapter. It is a heavy chapter. It is a dark chapter. It's a gruesome, it's a gory chapter. It's a messianic prophecy of what Jesus endured for us on the cross. And we read in Isaiah 52 that when he was slaughtered, he was slaughtered so intensely that he did not even have the form of a human being. That's how mutilated he was. Any painting you've seen of the crucifixion, any statue you've seen, any film you see of the crucifixion was G-rated. And the crucifixion was in reality uh, not rated. There's no way that, that you could rate it. It was such a slaughter that nobody could look at it, we read. We read in Isaiah 53 that, that we, we hid our faces from this slaughter, from this crucifixion, because this person on the cross was so disfigured and mutilated. It was not rated. We couldn't look at it. This is the reason that this baby was born, to go from the manger to the cross on our behalf. You know, when a baby is born in the... In the, in the hospitals around here in JPS or Harris or Baylor, the dad will pick the baby up. And the dad has plans for the baby. I, I want this boy to grow up and play the sport that I played. I want this boy to grow up and perhaps go to the college that I went to. And I have dreams of this boy growing up and being successful and being happy and being well-respected. When that baby was born in Bethlehem, God the Father looked at the baby, his son and his plans, his dreams for that son was to grow up and to be slaughtered on a cross. To be despised, to be rejected, to be ridiculed, to be slaughtered. 
so that we could be accepted, so that we could be healed, so that we could be heaven-bound. For the last three or four weeks, we've been looking at the slaughter of the cross because Romans 6, verse 23 says, the wages, the result, the consequence of sin is death, and we've all sinned, therefore we all die. And as we've been walking through Isaiah 53, we saw that they esteemed him not. They didn't think they had a need for the Savior. They didn't think they had a need for a Messiah who was going to be slaughtered. You would think that they would look at the cross and see the the, the messianic prophecy written 700 years before the time of Christ and see that like a transparency placed over that historical event and put two and two together and say, this was for us, and they would fall on their face. But they didn't think they needed a Savior. They thought they were doing a pretty good job of upholding the law themselves. And any time we diminish... God's holiness, his righteousness, his purity, his love, his expectation of us to love, because all of the Old Testament can be summed up in one word, love. The first four Ten Commandments deal with loving God. Thou shalt not take the Lord thy God's name in vain. Thou shalt honor the Sabbath. Thou shalt not commit idolatry. The, the remaining six commands deal with loving others. Thou shalt not uh, murder. Thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not commit adultery. The first four of the Ten Commandments deal with loving God. The remaining six of the Ten Commandments deal with loving one another. And Jesus said all the law and the prophets, the entire Old Testament, can be summed up with these two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The first four of the Ten Commandments. And the second one is like it, Jesus said. Love your neighbor as yourself. And it can all be summed up in one word, and that one word is love, and everybody has failed to love. We've all allowed our hearts to grow hardened towards the one who created us to worship him. We've all allowed ourselves to walk in lust when we were called to walk in holiness. We've all allowed ourselves to walk in bitterness when we were called to forgive and be gracious. We've all taken when we were supposed to give. We've all been selfless, selfish when we were supposed to love. We've all broken the law of love. We've all fallen short. And anytime we diminish our understanding of God's holiness. We begin to elevate our perception of our own righteousness. And as a result, we esteem not Jesus Christ's work on the cross because we don't think we need a Savior from our sins. We don't think we need a Savior from the penalty of sin. We just think we need a new outfit. We think we need a nicer car. We think we need our boss to like us. We think we need people to be okay with us. We think we need to keep up with the Joneses. But what we desperately need is a Savior. Because when we have a right understanding of the holiness of God, we therefore have a right understanding of our want, our lack of righteousness. And we therefore understand that our single greatest need is a Savior. And that's what Isaiah 53 is about. This Savior paid for our sins on the cross in the most brutal 
slaughter imaginable. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. When we have this proper understanding of God's holiness, we realize that none of us are going to strut into heaven in our own righteousness. And we fall on our face. And we say, oh God, Thank you for the work of the cross to rescue me from my sin and to impart to me the gift of your own righteousness and to give me your spirit and to make me your child and to reconcile me into my original purpose. And it's the only purpose that can satisfy my soul, and that's a relationship with you. So Isaiah 53 goes into great detail discussing this Slaughter, the reason the baby was born, to go from the manger to a brutal cross on Golgotha. And then what is so exciting is like a sunrise, Isaiah 54 and Isaiah 55 goes into great detail expressing the work of the crucifixion in our lives. The glory of Christ shining in us and through us that was accomplished as a result of the gore and gruesome sacrifice upon the cross. And we're going to see that this glory of Christ shining in us and through us is experienced in the most unique places. We're going to see that the joy that's accomplished for us is found in the most unique places. Places The fruitfulness, the forgiveness, the protection, the boldness is found in the most unique places. For example, I read an article uh, some years ago about a man who bought a painting at a flea market. And he paid $4 for this painting. And he only bought it because of the frame. He, he described the painting as a cheap, dismal dark country scene and he had planned to to remove the painting and just recycle the frame for something else but as he peeled back the canvas he discovered hidden behind the painting folded very tightly several times into the size of an envelope was a first copy of the declaration of independence and he turned around and sold that for 1.2 million dollars now it's an amazing story that he sold the first copy of the declaration of independence for 1.2 million dollars but the real surprise there is where he found that treasure in a flea market a four dollar painting And so it is with our lives. Sometimes we look at our lives and we see a dark, dismal scene. But if we peel back the canvas, we see the sovereignty of God, the real treasure that was there all along, and we can experience what God wants to give us in those seasons. In Isaiah 54, we read about three of the most sorrowful seasons that one could experience. Let's look at the first, Isaiah 54, and we read in verse 1. Sing, O barren, you who have not born. Now, the barren singing in this context, in this culture, is an oxymoron, it's a paradox, it's a contradiction in terms. Singing with joy and being barren seem to be mutually exclusive. Ordinarily, 
singing for joy is not uh, something that would flow out of being barren in this context, in this culture, because offspring was everything. It was an agricultural community, and um, these families would have big families, many, many children, because one, some of them might pass away, and also they needed people to take care of them in their older age, and they needed children to work the land and to work the farm, and your name was everything, and and to not be able to give your husband an offspring who could perpetuate their name was a stigma, which is why uh, we read the, the story of Abraham and Sarah, that Sarah had such sorrow, or the prophet Samuel's mother, who had such sorrow. Or we read about Ruth and Naomi, who had such sorrow because of barrenness. And yet we read to sing and be joyful in this barrenness. The second sorrowful experience that we read about in Isaiah 54 is a woman who has become widowed. And in the same breath, it also speaks about a woman whose husband of her youth forsook her, ran off with somebody else. And to that woman, we see that there is going to be blessing that she could not imagine. And then we read about a city that is besieged, a city that is attacked, a city that is brutally, without mercy, attacked. Sometimes we see clips of a hurricane, and the hurricane is just smashing against a city, obliterating the city, destroying the city. This is the picture that we have of a city that's being obliterated because it has so many enemies coming against it, because the city, Jerusalem, has so many people who want to see it destroyed. And we read about this in verse 11. O you afflicted one, tossed with tempest and not comforted. So we have three experiences here. The first experience is that there is a woman who is barren. And the second experience is that there is a woman who is grieving because she is widowed. And in the same breath, there is a woman who is grieving because the the, the love of her youth ran off with somebody else. And then the third experience that we see is that there is a city that is absolutely, brutally being smashed. And this is the flea market. And this is where you would not expect to find a treasure. This is where you would not expect to be comforted. This is where you would not expect to give God glory because it is just flowing uncontrollably from your heart. And yet that's exactly what takes place. Let's go back to chapter 54, verse 1. Sing, O barren, you who have not born, break forth into singing and cry aloud. You who have not labored with child, the, re, the, the cause of this singing and praising and rejoicing in the midst of barrenness follows. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman, says the Lord. And with this promise, 
God gives expectation, enlarge the place and enlarge the place of your tent and let them stretch out the curtains of your dwelling. Do not spare, lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes, for you shall expand to the right and to the left. Your descendants will inherit the nations and make the desolate cities inhabited. How incredible is this? God says to the desolate, sing, rejoice, let your heart overflow with praise because you are going to have more children, more blessing than anyone with countless children and so much so that go ahead and start preparing for it and expand your territory because there's not going to be room enough to receive it. What a promise. And then God says to the woman who lost her husband to death, or the woman who lost her husband to another woman, verse 4, do not fear, for you shall not be ashamed, neither be disgraced, for you will not be put to shame, for you will forget the shame of your youth and will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He, was, he is called the God of the whole earth, for the Lord has called you like a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, like a youthful wife when you were refused, says your God. And then he talks about the Babylonian captivity for 70 years, which will at this point of writing occur about 200 years from this point. For a mere moment I have forsaken you, but with great mercies I will gather you. With a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have mercy on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. And you say, but why, what, what was the deal with the wrath? Why did, why did God punish him? Well, because God is a father, and what father doesn't punish his children, his entire nation of Israel, the bearer of the covenant, the, the incubator, the lineage for the Messiah, the ones who were called to bear his name and reflect his glory were caught up in all kinds of idolatry. They were worshiping anything, you name it, the bells. They were even uh, partaking in these, in these very crude sexual acts to the bells praying to these false gods that it would rain on top of their land, believing that that was the seed of Bel that would impregnate the land and cause fruitfulness to grow. And when they did have a good harvest, they didn't praise God, they praised Bel. And they would even offer their own infants as sacrifices on these altars to Bel. And God continued to be patient. He continued to call them to repentance. And they continued to persist in their sin. And then he disciplined them. And he brought them to a place where they looked away from their bells and with broken hearts, they looked to him and said, restore us. And God abundantly restored them. And God says this, for this is like the waters of Noah to me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah would no longer cover the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be angry with you nor rebuke you. For the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart, nor shall my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has mercy on you. And God is saying that I'm going to bless you with my kindness. I'm going to shower you with my mercy. I'm going to restore you. You've, you've, you, you've strayed so far. You've strayed so far. And perhaps it's crossed your mind 
that my love for you has been exhausted, that my mercy for you has reached its limits, that my blessings for you are just a thing of the past. Nothing could be further from the truth because I have this passion, this agenda, this ambition in your life. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to restore you. I'm going to shower you with my kindness and with my mercy. So, to the one in barrenness, God says, rejoice because I am going to bless you. And to the one with the grieving heart, God says, be bold, be secure, have hope, have joy, because my loving kindness is going to be displayed in your life in a manner that you're going to be in awe of my gentleness and faithfulness towards you. And to the city, to the city that's slammed, to the city that's besieged, God says, O you afflicted one, tossed with tempest and not comforted, behold, and listen to how elaborate this restoration of this city is. I will lay your stones with colorful gems and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of rubies, your gates of crystal. Gates of crystal, how beautiful is that? And all your walls of precious stones. And your children shall be taught by the Lord. This is a prophecy of the restoration of Jerusalem and Israel, which took place, but it's a greater prophecy of when Jesus returns and establishes the new kingdom and the new Jerusalem, and the Sunday school teacher in the new Jerusalem is Jesus himself. Your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far, oppression shall be far from you. Do not fear. And from terror, for it shall not come near you. Indeed, they shall surely assemble, but not because of me. Whoever assembles against you shall fall for your sake. In verse 17, no weapon formed against you will prosper. The Bible doesn't tell us. God never promises that a weapon won't be formed against us. The Bible just says that when God redeems us, that weapon will not prosper. I've had weapons formed against me all the time, but they've never prospered. Nothing, nothing of my doing, but because of God's graciousness, every tongue which rises against you in judgment shall condemn. Weapons have been formed against me. Weapons have been formed against you. Tongues of judgment have risen against me. Tongues of judgment have risen against you. However, they shall not prosper because our righteousness is from the Lord. Is that not incredible? Our righteousness is not our own righteousness. Our righteousness is the Lord's righteousness. So, we have three experiences of sorrow, of agony, of grief, of despair. And we have, as a result of these uh, places, three experiences of God's faithfulness being poured upon them so that they rejoice and they expand their territories and they stand in boldness. And how does this happen? How do we exchange our sorrow for joy? How do we exchange our grief for a spirit of praise? How do we exchange our, our, our ashes for beauty? Because the Bible tells us in 1 Thessalonians that we are not those who grieve without hope. 
Everybody grieves. People who don't know Christ grieve. People who are very close to Christ grieve. Everybody grieves in this world. But there's a difference. We grieve with hope. The world grieves without hope. Oh, my goodness. I've officiated many funerals and walked, walked through that process with many families. And the families who have hope grieve so differently than the families without hope. It is night and day. And the Bible says that we grieve with hope. We also read that for the joy set before Christ in Hebrews, Jesus endured the agony of the cross. So Jesus even grieved. Jesus experienced agony, but his grief was not without hope. His hope was a joy that was going to be on the other side of the cross. You know, we read in Isaiah chapter 53 that Jesus was a man of sorrows. But he didn't sorrow. He didn't grieve without hope. He sorrowed and he grieved with a perspective, with an expectation of joy on the other side of those sorrows. In fact, in Psalms 45, I believe, a messianic prophecy, we read... Thou hast loved righteousness about Jesus and has hated wickedness. Therefore, God, this is God the Father speaking to God the Son, one of the many places that speak to the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Therefore, God, thy God, has anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Fascinating verse. Corroborating it over in the New Testament about a thousand years later and Hebrews chapter 1, verse 9, we read again that that was fulfilled after the death, burial, and resurrection and ascension into Jesus' ascension into heaven. And once again, God the Father says to God the Son, Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God, has anointed thee with the oil of joy above all thy fellows. So we see then that, yes, we grieve like the world. The world grieves, but we don't grieve in like manner. We grieve with hope. We grieve that Jesus will bring beauty out of the ashes, joy out of the sorrow, praise out of the grief. Jesus sorrowed. He was a man of sorrows. We read about Isaiah 53. That was a sorrowful experience as he who knew no sin became sin and was crushed on the cross. But that grief was not without hope. He was looking through that suffering to the joy on the other side of it when God the Father would anoint him with joy above everybody in all creation. And he would have the joy of the church and he would have the joy of fellowship with us and a joy of hearing us praise him and call out to him in dependent and affectionate tones. And so let me ask you this. In your sorrow, do you have joy? In your grief, do you have hope? In your agony and disappointment and loss, 
do you have an expectation for the glory of God to be revealed in your life? Sorrow absolutely has its place. Grief has its place. I oftentimes tell families of loved ones who've gone on to heaven, cry, weep, cry your eyes out. Your tears are healing. Your tears are prayers to God that require no words. And as you cry, God holds you. Don't neglect grief. It's critical for healing. Grief, sorrow, cry. But in your grief, do you have hope that all things are going to work together again? Do you have hope that the resurrection power of Jesus Christ will make everything beautiful? In your sorrow, are you looking forward to how God will do something unspeakably beautiful through this in the horizon? Or in your sorrow, are you looking back? In your disappointments, are you looking at your mountains and yourself? And are you coming up short and continue to walk uh, with, with hopelessness? Or in your disappointments, do you believe that God will bring something beautiful out of the ashes? And so let me conclude with this thought. If you grieve without hope, and if you sorrow without expectation of joy, and if you endure a a heart of agony without the conviction that God is going to do something beautiful through your disappointment and loss, could it be that you've allowed your sorrow, your disappointment, and your grief to become a point of idolatry in your heart. Because you won't let go of that lost sorrow, disappointment, or grief and look to Christ. You're holding on to that instead. Could it be? There's the story of a dad who gave his little girl a a, a strand of pearl necklaces that came out of a gumball machine, and it cost 25 cents. And yet she loved it, and she would never take it off, and she always wore it. And every day, the dad would kiss the little girl goodnight when he would tuck her in and say, would you give me that necklace? And she'd say, no, Daddy, you gave me this. I can never give this to you. He said, that's fine. Night after night, he would tuck her in, he would kiss her, and he would say, would you give this to me? And she said, no, Daddy, I could never give this to you. You gave this to me. One day, when the dad tucked his girl in and he kissed her goodnight, he didn't ask for the necklace. Instead, he walked out, and he was about to turn the light switch off, and she said, Daddy, and he turned around. And her lips are quivering, and her arm is extended, and she has that strand of necklace. And she said, this is the necklace that you always ask for. It's yours. And with that, the dad walks over and he pulls out of his pocket a strand of expensive pearls. And he said, I've been waiting for you to entrust me with this so I could give you this. In our grief, in our sorrow, in our disappointment, in our loss, let's be careful not to hold on to that more than Christ. And let's entrust it to Christ. Not understand it, but entrust it to Christ, expecting Him to do something beautiful through it. 
He is calling us to surrender our disappointments, surrender our loss, surrender our heartache, surrender our sorrow to Christ and to trust him with it. And how do we do that? Well, we continue into chapter 55, verse 1. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. How do you buy without money? We, we are, we're talking about the living waters of Jesus Christ and hearts that are thirsty, hearts that are thirsty because of sorrow and disappointments and setbacks and agony and grieving. Thirsty hearts are invited to come to God and drink deeply and quench our hearts and quench our souls. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. How do we buy without money and without price? We surrender our lives to Christ. It's like the offering plate that was being passed in a church one day, and it was a very affluent, upscale, uh, kind of country club type church, and everybody was dressed very sharp, and the kid was on the back row. He couldn't even afford shoes, and the money, the, the offering was being passed, and, and money was being put in it, and he was getting nervous because he had nothing to put in the offering plate. And when the offering plate came to this little boy, he took it, and he put it down, and he stood inside it, and he said, God, this is all I have. And this is how we buy the living water without money, we surrender our lives and we surrender our greatest disappointments, sorrows, setbacks, failures, pain. We surrender it all to Christ, expecting that he will do something beautiful with it. Verse 2, God basically says, why do you persist in this idolatry? Why do you spend money for what is not bread? How many addictions does this speak to in the room today? Why do you spend money, your hard-earned wages, for what does not satisfy? And isn't that what an addiction is? It's spending hard-earned money for something that hasn't satisfied you yet. And not only that, why do we cling to that cheap 25-cent necklace when God wants to give us a priceless treasure? We exchange it by surrendering our entire lives, surrendering our greatest dreams, our greatest aspirations, our greatest hopes, our deepest longings, our greatest sorrows. We surrender it, and then the healing process of Christ floods our soul restores us and gives us, as he promises in Isaiah 61, beauty for ashes, joy for sorrow, praise for a faint spirit. Listen carefully to me, God says, and eat what is good. Don't hold on to the cheap 25-cent necklace. Exchange it. Eat what is good. And let your soul delight itself in abundance. Verse 3, incline your ear and come to me here and your soul shall live. This is an invitation to everybody. This is not an invitation to simply Baptists. This is not an invitation to simply Church of Christ. This is not an invitation to somebody who simply went through the membership process of a church. This is not an invitation to someone who just got their uh, Boy Scout patch. This is not an invitation to someone who just got their 10-year sober chip. This is an invitation to anyone who will hear it and respond to it immediately. God says, come, 
here and your soul shall live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. And this covenant was signed in blood through the cross of Christ. And the result of that, verse 5, verse 6, seek the Lord while he may be found. If you hear his voice now, if he's calling you now, don't put it off because you may not always hear him calling you. Call him now while he may be found. That means that there may be a time when it's too late for you. Call upon him while he is near. Now's the time for salvation. Let the wicked forsake his way. This is a moment of repentance where everything in your heart changes at once and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Repent. Return to Christ. If you've never come to Christ, repent and return to Christ, you Christians who perhaps have made the sorrow your idolatry and trust the Lord to your deepest, with your deepest grief. We grieve with sorrow, with, with hope. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. And this is because of Isaiah 53, the work of the cross. You can be forgiven. You can be clothed in the righteousness of God and your deepest sorrow can become your point of deepest and greatest hope so that you experience Christ like you never have before. And as a result, the barren will praise. The grieving wife will be blessed and bold and secure. And the besieged city will be strong and secure and restored and fortified. This is the result of the work of the cross. But we return to him now. We have to return to him now. What would you say if I told you that I had a brand new, I mean, brand new 2019, this beautiful uh, car with the, the, all the, the, the greatest technology, the greatest comforts, the nicest car that you could imagine, and I couldn't afford it. I bought it without money. And you say, well, how do you buy that without money? Well, well, easy. I just took my old car down there, and I exchanged it for this car. They didn't want any money. They just wanted my old car, that car where it was all out of alignment, that car that rattled, that car where the engine was knocking, that car with, with, with 300,000 miles, that car that was falling apart. They didn't want any money. They dealt by transacting on the, with, with an exchange of the old for the new. They just wanted the old. If I give them my car, they'll give me that new car. Well, this is what God is saying. I want your old life. I want your sorrows. I want your hurts. I want your disappointments. Trust me with it. Trade it in. And as a result, I will give you beauty for ashes, joy for sorrow, praise for grieving, strength for a faint spirit. Trade it in. So what do you have to entrust to the Lord? As I was studying this, I was greatly encouraged that God's kindness, His mercies, His tenderness, I was also convicted at some points of idolatry, perhaps in my heart. Some disappointments, longings, prayers that maybe I was holding on to greater than my trust in Christ. And the Lord tenderly said, surrender that to me. 
And watch me give you beauty for ashes, joy for sorrow. And he wants to do that for all of us. He wants to transact through the process of grace. He wants us to give him our old so that he can give us his new. Would you stand with me, please? You would just bow your heads. Father, God, you know, you know the... You know the longings of everyone in this room. You, you know the sorrow. You know the grief. You know the despair. You know the longings. You know the disappointments of every heart. And you yourself sorrowed. You were a man of sorrows. But you sorrowed with an expectation of joy when the resurrection of power of of, 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 of the empty tomb makes all things new. And you say, that, you say in your word that we all grieve, but we grieve with hope that the resurrection power will make all things beautiful. So we just pray right now that everybody here would exchange their sorrow for joy. And they would just give you that 25-cent necklace and expect you to do something just priceless in return. The Bible tells us, No eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor has entered into the heart of man the things God prepared for those who love him. It is so exciting to think about, to dream about what God will do through the person who entrusts him with their deepest sorrow, their deepest sadness, their deepest longing. Will you entrust that to the Lord this morning? Perhaps you've never become a Christian. Imagine what Jesus did for you on the cross. He did that for you. He did that for you because he loves you. Because he would rather go through the cross for you than to spend forever in heaven without you. Turn to him this morning. Call on the name of the Lord to be saved this morning. You know, there's a, there's a story that when Japan finally surrendered to the Allies, to the United States, see, surrender was not in their vocabulary. It was not in their vocabulary. So statisticians crunched the numbers and concluded that if we invade Japan, surrender is not in their vocabulary. The result of that will be catastrophic loss for the Allies, some 75,000 to an estimated 250,000 American lives would be lost. So they dropped the first atomic bomb on Hiroshima. They dropped the second atomic bomb on Nagasaki. Japan finally surrendered. And when the general, I believe it was MacArthur, was on that, that aircraft carrier with the, the Japanese leadership and Japan surrendered, they signed, but the Japanese general still had his sword strapped to his side and the general said, your sword, sir, will accept nothing less than total Surrender requires humility to totally surrender. And right now, Jesus 
will accept nothing less than total surrender. He wants total surrender. Yes, you've trusted him with your salvation. Trust him with your loss. Trust him with your sorrow. Trust him with your disappointments. Trust him with your past. Trust him with your pain. He wants total surrender. And the only way, this is a paradox, but the only way we will experience total victory in Christ and abundant joy is if we totally surrender to him. Total surrender. Hold nothing back. And we surrender by giving it all to him and trusting him to do something unspeakably beautiful for his glory and our deepest joy and the hope of the world. Total surrender is what he's after. And so this morning in our response, I just want to invite you to act like that little boy who stood in the offering plate and said, here I am. Here am I. Just give him everything this morning. Give him everything. So in our response time, I just want to invite you to totally surrender to Christ. What do you have to give to him. Offer him a sacrifice of praise. Offer him your entire life, your entire past, your entire future, your entire hope. Total surrender this morning. Would you bow your heads with me? How many of you have something you need to surrender to Christ this morning? Raise your hand high. Father, you see these hands. We totally surrender this morning. We pray that we would experience the resurrection power of Jesus Christ in a way that just absolutely causes us to praise you and rejoice and to be speechless and to want to dance and to want to sing and to want to share with everybody of your glory. Let's respond, guys. The altars are open.